Hello everybody and welcome back to the APGRD podcast series, Stage in the Archive. I am delighted to be joined today by Steffi Harrop and Zachary Dunbar to discuss a library item from a very own archive. And it is their recent book, Grit Tragedy and the Contemporary Actor, which was published in 2018 and has very recently won the Rob Jordan 2020 Prize from the Australasian Drama Studies Association for, quote, the best book in theatre, drama or performance studies published in the previous two years, end of quote. So just a brief introduction to our two guests before we dive into our discussion of this wonderful book. Steffi Harrop is Senior Lecturer in Drama at the Liverpool Hope University. Her research focuses on contemporary storytelling practices, spoken word performance, grit tragedy and classical receptions, and performer training. Steffi also works as a professional storyteller, creating new performances for and with audiences across the UK and beyond. In 2016, she founded the Juniper Tree, a groundbreaking student-led storytelling club in the heart of Liverpool. Zachary Dunbar is Associate Professor of Theatre and Performing Arts Research Convener at the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music at the University of Melbourne. Originally trained as a concert pianist, his interest in theatre making and music led to research in great tragedy. He has taught integrative acting approaches in musical theatre, taught and directed great tragedies and written for the theatre. His most recent works include Florida, an investigation into the queerness of masculinity, which had a performed reading at La Mama in 2016, and Antigonex, of which he was director, writer and producer, and which had a full production in theatre works at the Midsummer Festival. So welcome, Steffi and Zachary, and thanks for joining us today. So let's start from the very beginning, from what motivated you to co-author this book. Um, so what were the questions that you were asking which led to writing Rich Tragedy and the Contemporary Actor? Yes, hello. <laughs> Hi, uh, uh, yes. lovely to be with you this morning, this evening, because we're all over the world right now. But yeah, I, uh, Zachary, I, not that long ago, was going through an old folder of notes and drafts and who knows what, and I found some photographs, the two of us, outside Central, in the park at Swiss Cottage, in the sun, by the fountain. <laughs> and it's, yeah, that's in a sense where this book started, I think, with... Yes, uh, you're right. The two of us at uh, Central School of Speech and Drama in London, teaching Greek tragedy, working with acting students, and particularly in my case, Zach can speak for himself, uh, but a kind of gradual realisation that I spent years looking for a book that I wanted to use with these students and realising that the book I wanted to use with these students did not exist. And therefore, I was going to have to talk somebody into helping me to write it. So for me, that was really the starting point, working with students in the studio, trying to think about how we might act these scenes and these plays, and just realising that the book I wanted to, to help them was not there. Yes, I, I can ditto that. And well remembered, by the way, stuff that we were sitting by the fire, because I, now, now that you've uh, queued it up, yes, I do recall that day. Um, I think, yeah, it started out with just that sense of disappointment. So just to um, mirror what Steph said, that disappointment with the status quo. I mean, here we were uh, training contemporary actors who might have been pretty much drilled in an array of techniques and things. 
And still they would come to you going, what's my character? And asking all these sort of questions that were probably more fit for the 19th century classical text. I mean, so that was a kind of, well, you know, we try to show disappointment in our looks, but we're thinking, surely you can think outside that little box. That was one. Two, and I think our disappointment that, not that there should be a, a, a book to teach Greek tragedy, but something that could reflect the experience of the encounter of Greek tragedy in the studio space, as opposed to just the, the classical discourse space or, you know, historical space. So I think it was just maybe just this underlying disappointment that we have. We go, I think there's, there's a gap here. And, and Steph and I, of course, have, have worked together, and we also studied, I think, with the same supervisor. So I think we also had a legacy to kind of lean on in terms of thinking about this book. Absolutely. And in terms of, of you know, the, the work that the book does, something that was really important for me, and I absolutely remember sitting on a park bench just ranting at Paul Zach about this, is that every time I would teach, you know, a, a module or a, a study on, on Greek tragedy, I would have to set aside a whole session, a whole afternoon, you know, however long the session was, I would have to set aside a whole one to argue with the students about Aristotle, to argue with all these kind of preconceptions and myths and, and stories and sometimes flat out fantasy that you know live rent free in acting students heads and that you kind of have to get at least shake them up a little bit before you can start to work so that was really interesting too because yeah kind of doing that every single time I just felt well why am I the only person who does is this just me um, <laughs> it may have been just me but that was <laughs> no, well, it wasn't you. In fact, I, I, my, my experience of that thing of living rent free was that Stanislavski-based um, practices were also living rent free. And I think what it was is it was being reinforced by the sort of paradigms of performances at the National Theatre, which equated, you know, sort of contemporary relevance with realism and character-led acting, which you know is kind of cringeworthy in many respects when it comes to Greek tragedy. So there was that, and we thought, well, gosh, you know, we are actually confronting something which is also embedded or preconditioned in the approach to Greek tragedy. So, um, and that actually, because Steph brought that up, and I thought, well, if you do the Aristotle part, I'll do the Stanislavski part. And in fact, that's that was the kind of, that was staging the discussion in the in the Greek tragedy book. In fact, they sort of open it as the two main chapters. Yeah, actually, that nicely leads into my second question, which is how how do you define how do you define the contemporary actor in the book? Can you talk about both things like Aristotle and Stanislavski? So, how do you combine the two? Um, it's an interesting one. Um, I I think certainly my definition of the classical actor changed across the kind of I suppose about five years that we were working on the book and five years on several continents as well because nothing stands still in this world. So I think definitely when we began, the classical actor was our students, our students at Central School of Speech and Drama, my students at Rose Bruford College, the various other places that I was you know, leading masterclasses and, and taking rehearsals. So an emerging performer, someone who's going to work in the 21st century, someone who expects to work across a whole range of disciplines and genres and styles, someone who lives in their body, someone who is kind of physically attuned and, and somatically engaged and yet stops doing all of that as soon as they get to Greek tragedy and, and suddenly goes into this fear response when they get to Greek tragedy. So I think that's where 
where we started in terms of who the contemporary actor is. But I don't know, Zach, do you want to dive in on that? Yeah, um, that actually, that was one of the questions which arose in our in our consciousness, uh, actually quite immediately, because in fact, we made it a point, and we do stress that in the introduction, that we, we were not, you know, it's not something to be untangled, what's a classical actor, what's a contemporary actor. In fact, historically, they've shaded into each other, you know, that in fact, anything contemporary has used something classical, but it, but it's kind of uh, modernized it in the, in, in the sense of what modern meant in those eras. Um, apart from that, yeah, it was the, the fact that people, a lot of um, perform actors in training would uh, be exposed to all kinds of these, uh, you know, somatic practices or psychophysical practices in case of Stanislavski-based um, training. And then, yeah, encountering Greek tragedy, they see a text and suddenly they're, they're looking for the character, they're looking for the, the, the cathartic moment, you know, all these sort of fake Aristotelian um, projections. Um, the other thing, though, that we did think about is that, you know, the contemporary actor sits across, naturally anyway, across, in, both globally and in terms of the leading uh, actor training institutes, across, you know, both the psychophysical, because that's just a neologism that Stanislavski created in the interconnectors of the mind and body. And also, we mentioned spats about what the body can do. Uh, but also, alongside that, you know, issues about cogn you know, the cognitive relationships. So these larger discourses loom around what contemporary means. And so we, we also engage a little bit with that in, in discovering, you know, what, what we sense contemporary acting is. But as I think it was Steph's word, it is an illusion, it's elusive and illusory, I think, to try to uh, define who is the classical actor, contemporary actor, because in fact, uh, those legacies have always kind of crossed each other historically. But though, I will say one thing, uh, classical canon seems to predetermine a little bit what people think a classical actor is, when they have a classical canon in hand. So there's, there's still that sort of leftover uh, in terms of curricula and training. Absolutely. I, I think I did also have a picture in my head. You know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the things that might inhibit or, or represent challenges for the, the, the actor in training, the emerging actor working with Greek tragedy. But I definitely also had a picture in my head when we started these conversations of a particular workshop that I did um, with undergraduates on the uh, European Theatre Arts Programme at Rose Bruford. I'm waving to you if any of you are listening. Um, long, long ago, we were doing we were doing inevitably a workshop on Antigone. Of course, we were, and I started with some Lecoq work, and then I'd kind of gone sideways into some work that I'd actually invented, although I hadn't realised that at the time. But there was just a beautiful moment when the chorus were kind of flexing their muscles and figuring out who they were and what they could do, and they. Uh, beautifully, wordlessly and flawlessly made the decision that they were going to throw the king out of the window. So that's one of my very, very happiest rehearsal memories of just the chorus of Antigone, picking up the king, carrying him across the studio and putting him out of the window. It was, so that was very strong with me as a memory of what's possible, of what these emerging actors can do if just given permission and given space and given a few prompts. So I think there's a sense of real potential as well around the contemporary actor and what they might do if they're just given the space and the permission. On that, just on that note, I remember we discussed that this contemporary actor is also a theatre maker uh, in, in a sense that 
you know, a lot of the curricula these days, in fact, create the complementary strand or the coexisting strand of training, which is theater making. And therefore, people who can create performance decks, and hence, quite possibly what prompted these people to take license to throw the king out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, because we are making theatre also. Absolutely. Uh, as, you know, as a, actors who kind of also have a sense of, of authorship and the authority mm. that goes with that. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So actors who don't necessarily wait to be told what to do. Well, that, that again, leads very nicely into, into what I wanted to ask, which, which has to do with theatre making, has to do with translation, has to do with adaptation. It's a very big question. So it's... It, it's to do with uh, how you understand the role of translation in the theatre making process and and the way many of us encounter great plays uh, in the first instance is through translation. So how do you deal with that in, in the workshop or in the practice of acting great tragedy? Absolutely. Well, I, I feel like I've been thinking about that question for a long time and I've I've decided to go full on positive. I think we should respond to that situation with delight and with pleasure and with play. Many of us uh, working in acting and drama and in those kinds of fields, we don't have the language skills to be dealing with Greek tragedy in the original. And you know what? That's actually a wonderful opportunity. Because one of the things that really, really excites me with working with Greek tragedy in translation is that it brings multiplicity back into the picture, that there is never one text, there are always dozens, there is never one way of engaging with that story, there are always 10, 20, 30, 100. So in a sense, or I'm going to be provocative now, um, in a sense, there's an authenticity in that, because one of the things that really excites me about Greek tragedy in its earliest context was that we're dealing with narratives that always exist in multiple forms, that are always changing, transforming, that are being malleable, that you might be seeing a performance of a story that is familiar, but the exact shape it's going to take is, is always going to be unpredictable. So in a sense, the multiplicity of translation is, is this wonderful opportunity for the contemporary actor and the contemporary theatre maker to re-inhabit that sense of provisionality about tragic narrative and what tragedy can mean. It's always multiple. You can always take your pick. And if you don't like the hundred translations that are out there, then brilliant. Let's adapt it a new way. I think it's the most wonderful provocation, actually. Good for us too, as, as human creatures, to live with multiplicity and uncertainty, to live in a world where other people imagine the same story in a completely different way. I think that's very good for us ethically to, to well with that, because um, I don't know how things are in Australia right now, Zach, but in the UK, we're not doing very well at dwelling with each other's multiple narratives. Well, multiple narratives in the history of Great Britain, of course, have always been a conflicted space. So, um, trying to find the one monolithic narrative and all that. Um, look, I just want to jump on the idea of uh, not translation, but ad adaptation, uh, which which also deals with a, the kind of uncertainty. And yet, adaptation seems to have more of a certain link to it because you're sort of going to a kind of uh, vision, either either a tourist vision or you know vision of the group. The reason why I bring up adaptation is because I hate the word adaptation. I, I, I in fact, when I started first doing classical reception, I always loved the word reimaginings. Uh, I think reimaginings is, is a much more 
can I use egalitarian? Um, yeah, oh, yes, way, way, way of thinking about it, because particularly today when we deal with, um, you know, who's translating or adapting, you know, we deal with positionality as a, such a huge issue now, a, a bigger, in fact, than it's ever been, and, and timely as well. There are legacies and value systems behind the adapter, behind the translator that, you know, deals with either experiential or ideologically driven issues. And that's why uh, when, whenever somebody thinks about adaptation, I, you know, I just kind of go, well, wait a minute, let's stand behind adaptation translation. Well, let's, let's talk about just position, first of all, you know, and is it Southern Hemisphere? Is it Asia Pacific? Where are you? Is it local? Is What festival are you talking about? You know, and, and what big group are you part of? Or are you part of a little fringe? All these things actually infiltrate the notion of even translation adaptation or some people say your voice. The other thing is, I'd just like to say quickly, is um, Greek tragedy, um, just even as part of the creative process, whether it's through translation, adaptation, really continues to intrigue me for three reasons. And, and, this, and when I look at translation, adaptation work, I look at, first of all, you know, are they using the models that, that are assumed in Greek tragedy? Are they using the metaphoric? Um, uh, richness of it, you know, is it incest, gender, you know, patricide, matricide, or the methods that are involved in singing and dancing or scenographic. So every time we, we start doing translation adaptation, my mind goes there first. I'm, I'm less, I think, I think Steph's much more, I think, uh, uh, deeply informed, really, of the, the, of the kinds of translations that occur, uh, both historically and, and contemporarily. But anyway, I just thought I'd bring up that word positionality because it's so big now. And I remember when doing uh, classical reception, that wasn't such um, a central issue, but it certainly is now, particularly if somebody's going to stage, translate, or adapt, you know, Greek tragedy. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. It's so important. And a lot of my thinking on this absolutely comes out of being a storyteller as well. As a storyteller, you are always going to re-perform a narrative that has been told before. So you don't, you're not a good storyteller because you tell a story that no one has ever heard. You're a good storyteller if you're a good storyteller, if you're having a good day, because as Zach has said, you find meaning in that story between you and the people you are working with in that particular moment, that time, that place, that setting, that context. So it's the finding, finding the fit, the meaning, the congruence, the potential in a particular time, place, setting. And you've both touched upon this uh, already in, in different ways, but you talk about the poetry of the text the poetry in the ancient text. And one question that I had was, how, how does that, how does the, the poetic in these ancient texts sort of feed into an active training for the contemporary actor? I'll, I'll jump in first on, on this one, only because it really preoccupied me. And Steph was, you know, behind me with a whip on this one, because I, I was particularly focusing on, on voice and sound and actually some of the music, more musical and musicality aspects of, of the chapters. And of course, the poetic, for me, evokes a, a, the music score-ness of, of the performance text. So uh, not just that the act, of course, brings feelings and emotions, imagination to it but the but the very uh, materiality of that word uh, it's phonetic it's semantic it's appositional it's metaphoric it's word craftiness it's repetition you know all that is such vital material i mean each one of those components can unpack almost like an atom and produce such amazing things to the actor without us even going to well, what is the meaning of that line and what is the intention of the character even before we even get there so poetry to me i mean apart from 
the, the legacy of what poetry means and, and historically what it's, it's meant in terms of literature for, for different countries is, is to look at it more not as, as beautiful aesthetic words on the page which evoke a place time or whatever, but actually as a music score, which, which gives all kinds of possible means of expression. And that is kind of some of the things I try to um, tease out, I think, in some of the chapters, particularly to do with acting uh, sound and, and the chorus. Yeah, absolutely. I love that stuff. And it, it resonates really strongly with, I guess, some work from my past life about taking the kind of text of tragedy as provocation for dance and physical performance, again, kind of interpreting it through the body rather than through the brain. You know, how does it feel? How does it move? How does it breathe rather than, you know, how does it, how does it make me think? But I guess I would also add one of the things I really love about Greek tragedy is its non-realness. I just love how kind of relentlessly and unapologetically not real it is. So of course, this drives me mad when I, I see work that kind of tries to make it realist. I don't, I do understand, but I'm not happy. It makes me uncomfortable. Uh, but I think the unrealness, the not realness of the kind of worlds that are presented in Greek tragedy is, again, it's a gift. It's a provocation and it's a gift for the contemporary theatre maker because I cannot think of a single excuse, for example, in Greek tragedy to cast according to a character's gender or according to a character's ostensible racial identity or you know according to whether your body is like their body the unrealness of of greek tragedy feels to me to offer this wonderful opportunity to be very brave and to be very challenging of ourselves in terms of who can play what who can represent what who gets to say which words who gets to occupy which positions in the hierarchies of plays um you know as i've said in terms of race in terms of gender in terms of identity in terms of kind of ability and, and what body might or might not be able to do it just feels to me like such a wonderful provocation to say everyone can be in this space, can be part of this process, can be exploring and enjoying and creating meaning with and through these theatre artefacts, you know, whatever they are. I've, I've reached a point where I can't even say plays, but these races of past performances can, I think, provoke us to, to make work today that really pushes us to be brave about who owns this stuff, who gets to make choices, who gets to explore, who gets to be seen and heard and take up space. And I just want to say that stuff also, I, I think probably, uh, I, I mean, I didn't, I'm not immersed in classic, classics uh, as, as stuff. Is, and I think the idea of the poetic in ancient, ancient texts is, is a really interesting notion because, of course, uh, when, when, act, when contemporary actors look at whatever translation, whether it's, you know, an Anne Carson, very poetic one uh, to, or Ted Hughes, to something much more literal, they see dialogue. <laughs> uh, they see, oh my God, these long monolithic choral moments. Um, they see sometimes that it's, oh, it's, it's verse-like, isn't it? Or it's rhythmic. Or, and then suddenly they look at different translations and go, well, that's not so poetic. That's actually rather fragmentary. And that's, so in fact, the way one reads or in, gauges the eye 
what's on the page is is already shaped and reshaped because that's what you know, Greek tragedy is one of these uh, protean forms you know that keeps changing because of that so in fact it's the idea of the poetic is this creates not so much form and already forms but intractable in the intractability of language somehow the ineffability of language and what it's supposed to do to you as an actor so um and that's what i think when we talk about the poetic of the ancient text it's not so much oh here's a verse and here's a stick of mythia and here's no it's actually the enti entirety of it is asking for a poetic response not a poetic recitation wow thank you for that one other question is if you think it's possible for a classicist to engage fully with ancient plays without undertaking performance as an embodied experience. Oh, I Yes, I, it's a, this is a, yeah, uh, thanks for, for kind of um, disarming that bomb of a question, because, uh, well, yeah, who are we to presume actually what it means to engage even in, uh, what, what is an embodied experience in any case? An embodied experience could be absolutely passive reading something, and, and your hormones absolutely go through the roof because, you know, you suddenly feel something, your heartbeat goes. It doesn't mean that you're running around a studio and suddenly becoming somatic about one word. Um, I, I will say something anecdotally uh, it, that, in fact, in the other genres, uh, I'm working on a film script with somebody, um, and uh, I mean, I, I'm way behind in, in terms of the skill, and this other person goes, um, uh, said, you know, the, what we tell screenwriters is that um, in order to really, really know, to, oh, to become a director, actually, of screen, screenplays, is that, you, you know, you should take acting lessons and so there was something about that yeah I, I can understand why because it's you know you're, you're you start from going from behind the camera to in front of the camera so in a sense classicists are going from in front of the papyri or whatever to to what's actually on the other side so there are two sides to the reception of of the experience of greek tragedy and and one one should not preclude the other i mean they're they're both necessary and complementary to to well, if you want to call it to the more embodied experience or a deeper experience of it. I think also maybe I, the more I work on with around through Greek tragedy, the more I doubt that that fully is a word that any of us should be using because of how long Greek tragedy has kind of held the place it has in, in the academy. You know, there are so many facets, there are so many approaches, so many disciplines you know one lifetime cannot contain even all of that never mind everything you might potentially know about acting about theater making about performance making so I, I increasingly i do see these kind of artifacts of tragedy these traces of past performances as being something that maybe exceed all of us and maybe that's part of why they are interesting to work with and good for us to work with i think it's really good for us to work with something that exceeds us it's good to work with something that makes us say i cannot encompass this i will not own this 
um, I will engage with this, I will encounter with this, and maybe there will be transformation as a result of that. And certainly there will be an unsettling and a trumbling as a, as a result of that. <laughs> I think that's maybe useful too. Yeah, yeah. Can you say also embodied uh, within active training? It's gone from, it's kind of lost its sheen. It used to be one of these things like, oh yes, we <laughs> must get into our bodies. And now it just about means everything that is authentic. And and anything else is inauthentic. So it's it's actually what I, I don't use as much anymore <laughs> because uh, because of that. But it was terribly useful, uh, uh, you know, in its time. So um, I guess one of the one of the last few questions had to do with the chorus, as you might expect. So <laughs> so you describe the chorus as as one of the most daunting challenges facing a performer today. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Oh. Well, should we both dive in together, chorus-like stuff, Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, if we spoke together at the same time, of course, nobody would understand us, would they? <laughs> that might be appropriate. Yes. Um, I, I actually, when when I, I thinking about this question, um, it it just you know it, it sort of brings up again this whole bugbear of individuality and collectivity dilemma. Uh, particularly for uh, if we're talking about from the act, contemporary actors' perspective, you know, who want their part and who want their role and want to know their intention and how they're going to prepare for, you know, all those kind of basic questions, which even the post-traumatic world cannot get rid of. Um, you come in, you come face to face with not not so much the binary of individual collectivity, but that kind uh, kind of conflict. Uh, within that, of course, is the idea of, you know, within opera and music, you can harmonize um, different, different intentions. But, of course, in speech, cacophony rules if, if somehow those, those sounds and meanings aren't, aren't managed. So for a contemporary actor, it, it becomes daunting for that very reason. Okay, I'm preparing this part, but I can't hear myself. Well, I prepared this part, but no one saw my intention. Who's watching me? Who, uh, and, and then at the same time, does the group intone the individual's mood or does the individual intone the group's mood? We fall right back to the same classic or contemporary problems is why it's daunting a challenge. Um, but daunting challenge also means, of course, it's a gateway to possibly the, 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 great, the greatest phenomenon of Greek tragic performance is that to behold the chorus can be one of its, one of its magical, magical things. The last thing I'll say about that uh, is that it's daunting particular today because no one, what do we do, for instance, about the, an intersectional chorus, one where the in, individuality in itself, the authenticity of an individual is questioned in any normative way, uh, that, that you, can, you can identify as one thing at any one time. Uh, you know, what is a queer chorus? And I don't mean Dionysian. I mean, what is that chorus? Where it disrupts the normative structures of individuality or collectivity. It does not want to fit in either. So that's an extra daunting challenge when we think of collective or even community, the, ass the assertion that there is such a thing these days, particularly when intersectional voices are saying, you know, be, be cautious of what you call your community because I may not belong there. Do not assume, for instance, a marginalized community, which a lot of choruses are, um, is something that uh, a contemporary actor can necessarily identify acting in. So, so there are these new issues that have actually emerged um, apart from just the the, the normal bugbear of individuality and collectivity. Absolutely. I would agree with all of that. And maybe kind of picking up from some of those references to, to kind of harmony and 
other other notions of the choral. You know, if, if we think about ballet, if we think about the corps de ballet, how do they know they're doing it right? Well, someone will someone will stand in the studio and tell them. Well, more likely tell them that's wrong. But there will be someone who stands outside who has perhaps a memory of previous productions, who has a memory of having kind of danced those those roles in the past, and will say yes. That's right. You are doing it right. Well done. There is that kind of external source of validation. I think one of the really tough things about working with Greek chorus is where does that come from? You are trying to do something that is extraordinarily challenging in terms of breath, in terms of body, in terms of voice, in terms of space. And as Zach has identified, also in terms of self and identity and community, you're doing this astonishingly difficult thing that is both technically difficult and kind of soulfully difficult. It's, it's very difficult you know, around the kind of boundaries of, of, of the self and who we think we are and how we think we inhabit the world. So it's, it's already difficult on all those levels. And you also don't know what it's supposed to look like. You do not know what success is. So I think something that's really huge with Chorus is how do you set the terms for when you've done it? Because we, we don't have those models. We don't have survivals from the 5th century BC that would tell us I have now done my chorus right. So I think something else that's really important, really challenging about choral work is being brave enough to say, this is our aspiration for this chorus. This is when we'll know that we've done it. And to say, we are going to set the terms by which we we succeed or, or otherwise. That feels huge, especially when, you know, as we've already talked about in Greek tragedy, actors will so be looking for a source of authority, will so be looking for someone to tell them how to do it right. So that, yeah, setting the terms of our own success in chorus is actually quite horrifying. To, to many, many people who might otherwise be very excited about Greek tragedy. Would you say, Steph, that this also is the, um, the philosophical point of view, the free will and predeterminism of stand here, do this, and you'll be okay, and as opposed to actually in this very moment, I'd like to just step to the right a little bit more and be myself, you know, be me, <laughs> and go like, wait a minute, you've just ruined the whole course. Actually, it sounds more like what happens in musical theater rather than, than in Greek tragedy. Actually, but, I think yeah. a lot of people working in tragedy would love to be told, no, you just ruined it, go back there. It's the, yeah, yeah. not knowing that, that quite mm. often drives people crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the kind of great existential terror that both of those choices might be right and how will we know? Mm. Yes. Dear God, do we have to yeah. choose. Yeah, and different each night or each day. <laughs> <laughs> different for each king. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. Uh, the last question has to do with a few other very fundamental elements in, in Rich Tragedy, in Fading Rich Tragedy today that have to do with space and audience. So you open up the introduction with an exploration of the idea that in great tragedy it's important to know who you're talking to and the visual cues that are in, inherent uh, or not in costume, masks, etc. And I mean, chapter six, you address the role of acting space and environment. And I guess these questions that I'm about to ask are very much sort of informed by uh, the, the pandemic that we've that we've all um, sort of lived through and, and hopefully, hopefully are going to put behind at some point. But so how, how has this impacted uh, your own practice? And this book, of course, was published two years ago, sorry, three years ago, 2018, and has gained uh, further prominence in 2020. And we're now talking to you in 2021, where masks, a different type of mask 
has to be worn and, and visual cues have gained a very different significance uh, in the world of socially distanced performances or more usually Zoom, which we're using to record this podcast, by the way. So how do you understand the role of audience and identity in theatre made during the pandemic? Hmm. <laughs> well, Steph, that Sorry, was your opening. <laughs> well, look, I, Steph, I, I'm just going to give the ball over to you initially because that was your opening line in the book. And also, I was going, okay, what, what, what does that mean? It's important to know who you're talking to. So I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to you to start with, and 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 hope I can riff off something you might, <laughs> might say. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, I guess for me. Something that's always been really important in kind of my thinking about working with tragedy, but also more broadly, is um, is what the director Emma Rice says about the importance of why, the importance of beginning a project with why, and not just why this play, why this story, why this narrative, why this character, but why this story for this community, for these people, for this place, at this time so for me as a as a scholar for me as a storyteller that that why is is so so important and you know also for me as a storyteller that ability to be there with the audience i mean so much of the job is monitoring what the audience are, are doing how they're responding you're trying to hear the audience imagine as a storyteller, you are honestly standing there and your mouth is moving and you're talking and maybe you're doing things with your hands, but you're trying to hear the audience imagine. So all of your attention is is kind of in that space with them. And, and of course, the past year or so has been really, uh, really challenging, really difficult for that. And I was thinking in response to this question, actually, I haven't seen a lot of Zoom theatre in the past 12 months or so, I have seen an awful lot of Zoom storytelling. I've been kind of really embedded in that world and, and really working um, quite deeply there. And there's something that the storytellers I'm working with at the moment keep, keep talking about, keep reflecting on, which is trying to imagine the response of the other. So we're, you know, talking down our camera, we're doing whatever we're doing, and you can see the performer, the maker, pausing and, and really intensely trying to imagine what is not available to us of the response of the other. And I've seen you know, a wonderful storyteller kind of feeling the edges of the Zoom frame. Like, is there a place where she could put her fingers and put her hands where she could, where there could be some surrogate for touch it's, it's really something that has been uh, engaging and exercising storytellers and i don't have an answer to any of this but maybe something we are learning is to really be attentive to what we do not know about the audience the other the people we are addressing the people we are making work for and with i did a thing uh, before Christmas, a sort of remaking of a project that I'd been playing around with for a while. It's called Alcestis in Bits. It's uh, an attempt to tell Phrynichos' Alcestis, so that's a, a lost play. So it's an attempt to tell the story of a lost play, kind of in and through fragments. 
And I spent days sitting on my kitchen floor in lockdown, kind of talking to a camera and asking questions, asking questions to this audience that I couldn't see or hear or feel or touch. And that to me is really interesting. And I kind of hope that might be a legacy of this moment that we get braver about actually asking questions rather than making assumptions about who we are working for and with. I think there's something about that longing for the absent audience or the remote audience that I think we could be braver and more ethical in our engagements with those essential participants in whatever it is that we're doing. I don't know if that makes any sense, yes. but anyway, that's what I. Yes, no, that yeah, it, it was kind of a new world feeling. What about this? Uh, because stuff sort of covered really the, the huge dimension of of that question. Probably what I'll talk about is how the pragmatics gave rise to new aesthetics. Um, so you know, with Greek tragedy, we we kind of idealize the idea of the liveness, the immediacy, the the kind of directness, and the understanding of the of the reception as it is happening and it's you know so all that liveness and or, or organicness of is, is lost of course in virtual liveness um because all the acoustical and physical properties are you know are, are transposed into the virtual digital world having said that i mean there was real generate intergenerational wars there is in greek tragedy in that the young generation absolutely knew slate of hand digital techniques to create in place of liveness, you know, the cinematic, the, the, the filmic, the way immediacy was approximated by other means. However, that did not solve the problem, as Steph pointed out, of this sense of well, what is out there? Who is the out there? And what, are, what are they getting? And therefore, how do I create the feedback loop to change? There's almost a kind of preset way of doing things and that's what the digital world does it, you know it uh, the, uh, the digital world as opposed to analog presets the algorithms as it were of, of the performance so the liveness is lost one thing i did notice at the end of the day particularly from there's a lot of shared performing arts trainers around the world you know saying what are you doing in your space how do you solve the zoom problem and uh, inevitably of course they all missed bodies in space and bodies uh, you know emerging out of the sweat and the tears and the, and the somatic breath, um, because you can't even hear the breath or the breathing. You can sort of see the breathing, but you can't hear it. Uh, so the so that was that was its uh, poverty. Yet anything that looked a bit Greek tragic or chorus-like in any of these Zoom performances reminded me of Schlegel's The Ideal Spectator, because in that sense he kept saying. It's both distancing and yet immersing you. You know, the, the sense that that's what the course should do. In a sense, that's what Zoom did. It really created more distance, but at the same time, it allowed immersion almost immediate in another way. In other words, I could be immersed with somebody across the world immediately. Yet I was incredibly distanced from the feeling of it. So I, I think Schlegel's 19th century um, 
Uh, well, you know, a lot of people have sort of debunked it. So that's not the idea. But in sense, we, we've returned to that uh, in the experience of at least the core-like elements that one one assumes Greek tragedy can um, generate. I, you, no one will be surprised to discover that I have not been heading back in the direction of, of Schlegel. And one of the beautiful things about Greek tragedy in the contemporary actor, by the way, I think, is that Zach and I, you know, can be relied upon to disagree on most points. So it's a book that is never going to lay down the law because mostly, you know, its authors don't even agree among themselves, which I think is a, a real strength actually of the project and how we work together but one of the places i have been going in terms of sort of zoom working with with students and with and with workshop groups zoom is brilliant for agonism i don't know why this came as a surprise to me because you know it's so like a tv format which is such a kind of fighty format but we've had we've had a great time kind of working working you know, with the formal agon, but also just with that idea of um, Greek tragedy as struggle, as contest, as argument. It's a, it can be a fantastic platform for finding the argument because you've got these kind of talking heads locked into this kind of formal symmetry. It can be really exciting and interesting. But that so that's something that maybe rewards further play. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both for a really exciting and fascinating conversation, as I'm sure our listeners will agree. And we'll now want to borrow this book from our archive library when things will open up again. If listeners would like to check out Steffi's or Zachary's work, they can do so by visiting their personal websites at hcommons.org slash members slash Steffi Harrop and Zachary's work at www.zacharydumbar.com